0: You can turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Isn't it great to sing about what God has done in our lives, is it not? Just think and consider that he delights in us, he loves us. Not because of ourselves, but because of his name, right? Because of he, who he is. He's is a great and awesome God who chose to love us, chose to work in history, chose to redeem us, to call us his people, and to make us his own. And we have the privilege of being called the church, not because of ourselves, but because of him who died for us and rose again. And so we are a called group of people who are commissioned to make disciples because God is calling out a people, a community to his name from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we have the, the privilege of of committing ourselves to that and corporately to organize and to work to make that happen. And so this morning, as we look at that, we're going to be looking, in a sense, back at, a, at history a little bit. So you can consider uh, th- this, this aspect of being the church corporately. Because there's a history lesson here. And one thing we learned about uh, homeschooling... Uh, this, this year is that one of our kids loves history. So I'm going to give you a history lesson to an extent to, to help you understand this. Not every one of you loves history. I get that. Sometimes you, your eyes glaze over. And, um, but I want you to understand why history is important. Because when you're dealing with the problems of, uh, that you see in the world, sometimes history helps to understand that. And we are dealing with the problem in a sense of worldly leadership. What, is it like, what does it mean to, to lead and when we look around at our world today, we see leaders who are, in a sense, worldly. They're, they're trying to lead in, in ways that create success for them, create success and, and, and fame for them, and not to bless the people that they are responsible for. And, and you see that both in government, you see that in uh, corporations, corporations. Um, you see, you see, the, the, the CEOs, they, they get these uh, you know, the golden parachute packages, right? So if the, if, if the company fails under their leadership, they don't fail, right? Um, you, see, you see these uh, issues at play in our world. The, the, the problem of power in our world and how power is used is a huge problem. But it wasn't just a problem in our day. It's been a problem... Because of the problem in mankind. In fact, if you go back to to Jesus' day, uh, the disciples who were following Jesus misunderstood the the, the, the issue of power. And in Luke twenty two, as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, right, and he's focused on that, the disciples are are are. All are, all are arguing, and I get that out of my mouth, all are arguing who, who's going to be the greatest, like which one of the disciples is going to be like the second guy behind Jesus, and, and, and who gets that qualification, and how is that going to work, and who deserves to be in that role, right? And so in Luke 22, it says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus hears this dispute, and he rebukes them, and he says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. That is the idea of, hey, I, I deserve this position, and I will give you some gifts as a result, but it's about my, I deserve this leadership role. He says, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among, among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves for who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. It's like, who's the, one, who's the greatest? The one who gets to relax or the one who works? Of course, the one who gets to relax is the greater one. And he says, but, but I'm among you as one who serves. And when you, when you position yourself to serve, to put yourself under others in that sense... It doesn't look great to the world. Those who look great to the world are those who have success, those who can do what they please, can, can have what they want, can demand from others that they give to them, right? But the church is a different group. It organizes itself differently, and it has different leaders because its purpose is different. It does not exist for itself. It exists for those who aren't here yet. We exist, even as you look around and you say, look at what God has done. Look at the people God has called from different tribes and tongues and nations to be one people here. We, don't, we still don't exist for ourselves. We exist for those who aren't here yet. The next generation of Christians who God is calling out. But we didn't get here overnight, in a sense, as well. And when it comes to churches and to the organization of churches, we didn't get there either because that idea of the one who is greatest among you is the one who serves didn't always translate in his disciples, right? Those disciples didn't always follow that rule. And you ended up in the church with with, uh, historically what's called the Roman Catholic Church, and they had one pope, one bishop who ruled over all the churches— and there was a hierarchy, and over time, that hierarchy became corrupt. And Martin Luther, in 1517, nailed uh, to the door in Wittenberg 95 Theses, why the, the church shouldn't be operating the way it is. It was a lot about how forgiveness operated through the power of the church and through that, that process of, of his, in a sense, rebellion the, what was called the Protestant Reformation, where the church was seeking to reform itself to say, "Say this is not the way we should be operating," and uh, so the Lutherans came out of that. Other groups came out of that. One of the groups that came out of, in a sense, out of the Lutherans itself was the what was called the Anabaptists, or Anna stands for again. The you, literally in English, it would have been the rebaptizers. Okay. And they believe that you needed to be baptized if you were saved, and, but not b- baptized before you were saved. And so one of the key aspects of that was that they would say, okay, you know, if you got baptized as a child, that doesn't mean anything to you personally. It might mean something to your parents, but it doesn't mean anything to you personally in your relationship with God. And so if you have a relationship with God, you, you need to obey Him personally and get baptized again if you've been baptized the first time. This group of people um, didn't have political authority. They weren't. They didn't have uh, someone a patron over them that was protecting them, and so even Lutherans and other groups persecuted them. And so there's ideas that came in those out of that persecution. And the term Baptists became known, especially in England, as those who, who bought into this idea of a couple of things. And so I just want to go through a couple of things about it, what it means. Historically, these ideas have come because often of persecution as to what, where does our authority lie as a church? How do we organize ourselves? And the first one is biblical authority as opposed to hierarchical authority. That is, that the Bible is our sole and sufficient rule of faith and practice. Other groups taught that, for instance, the Pope or a Pope-like figure had, had just as much authority as the Bible and could, ex-cathedra, so to speak, say things that were uh, uh, from God and need to be followed just as much as the Bible. And we believe that the Bible is a sole insufficient rule of faith and practice. 2 uh, Timothy 3.16 says, "...all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable." for doctrine for approval for correction for training and righteousness that the men of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work that is this is all we need to do what God wants us to do we don't need someone else telling us what to do now we need teachers to teach us God's Word, and we need a a community to help us live out God's Word together, but this is what we need as opposed to some hierarchy of churches or some other church uh, coming out of us. And so one of the reasons why we we sometimes call Baptists, but Baptists don't really necessarily believe that we we need the name, because oftentimes actually the term Baptist was given to those, uh, given to them, people who believe like this, by their enemies— We're just trying to say we're biblical rather than that we're Baptists, but Baptist is a good acronym for these ideas. So the second one is the autonomy of the local church. That is, each local church doesn't have to have a hierarchy of leaders above it, but each local church should have the ability to make its own decisions and to rule itself. That's the autonomy of the local church, that we can just be a group together. And another idea here is the priesthood of the believer. That is, that we don't have to go to a priest to confess our sins, to get absolution or forgiveness for our sins, but each of us, because we have access to God ourselves, we can get forgiveness from Christ ourselves, the priesthood of the believer. You have the right. You don't have to come to me or any other individual and say, hey, I need to confess my sins, and am I forgiven? You can go to Jesus directly. That's very freeing, hopefully but it's also a great responsibility as well. You should be going to Jesus and saying, forgive me, right? If you're not, there's a problem. Another aspect here is two ordinances. Two ordinances, we believe. Again, that... That God has given us certain commands as to, to follow in the church to do together. And there's, there's two primary ones that we believe in. The first is communion, that Christ commanded his disciples to say, Hey, remember my death until I come back. We're, we're called to do that on a regular basis. It doesn't say how often a church has to do it. Some churches do it weekly, some churches do it monthly, some churches do it less than that. It doesn't say God gives us freedom on that, the Bible gives us freedom, but we're called, commanded to remember Christ's death until he comes. The other command that we're given is to baptize those who are identifying with Christ, to remind them of the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And those are two commands Christ gives to the church to do. Another aspect of this is the idea of individual soul liberty. So within the church... We're not, we're not supposed to control one another's consciences, right? The idea is we, we can believe what God wants us to believe. Now, we're, that's one of the reasons why we covenant together about what we believe. But the idea of individual soul liberty is that I can't tell you what to believe. I can't command your conscience. Again, because it goes back to biblical authority. God at his word is most important. So another aspect of this is saved, baptized church membership. Like, like, how do we know who's a part of the church? And again, some churches believe that you, you, uh, you, you baptize your kids and they grow up in the church and therefore they are church members. And we're saying that there's something that God does in each individual. It doesn't come because you're a part of a family. It doesn't even come because you attend church. It comes because God does something inside of you that gives you life and causes you to trust in Him, to trust in Jesus. And the reason why you're a part of a church is not because it's this club that you can join, nor is it because you grew up in the church or you just like attending the church. It's because you believe that God has delivered you from sin and judgment through Jesus' death on the cross and that you have new life in Him. That is what being part of the church means. Also, two offices, the two two key offices in the church that seem to be from the New Testament are, again, pastors or elders and deacons. That is, that, that the leadership within the church, it has those who are called to be pastors or elders to shepherd to oversee the church, and deacons, those who help serve and work within the church to help the church do what God has called it to do. The last one, as part of that historical development, is the idea of separation of church and state. As Baptists, we've been persecuted too many times (laughs) by those in power, and we don't want to replicate that problem. So we don't want to take over government and say, we know what's right for people to do and to live. We want to keep that separate because we want the freedom to believe and to practice what God we believe God wants us to do. And historically, it's interesting because in the Second Great Awakening, what happened, which is kind of a revival in America right before, the the revolutionary war it happened in the 1740s to 1750s this great awakening happened and then in 1776 the British government got too uh, controlling and people didn't like it and so there was a revolt no taxation without representation as they said And uh, so, historically, then, America declared its freedom, but it came right after this Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening wasn't just a Baptist. In fact, it wasn't even primarily a Baptist revival. But the Baptist churches overall grew the most during that revival. And so there's a tremendous influence of, of this kind of thinking about church and state as this new country was formed, to such a degree that we have codified in our Bill of Rights, right, there, there shall be no, no, no coercion, right, and there's not going to be no church, no state church, which is like the first time, at least in Western history, that that was the case. There's always a state church, even England, after it pulled out of the Roman Catholic Church, and it still had a state church, the Church of England, And in America, we have this, the government's not going to regulate religion. It's not going to control religion. We're not going to have a state church. And that happened primarily coming out of the Second Great Awakening and the ideas that have been talked about overall in this process. So we have these ideas at play in what it means to kind of organize churches. And and you see overall in America today, this is the case. Most churches actually, even if they aren't Baptists, practice a lot of these same ideas. There's a separation of church and state. There's local churches that don't have a total hierarchy, though some of them do, but it's pretty local still even then. And so you have the, the, these ideas percolating through, but at the same time as those ideas are there, there's some fundamentalized, fundamental ideas about what it means to be a leader, to organize yourself, to be a community together. That's really important. And we find in 1 Peter 5 some key ideas that need to get across in order to operate healthily as a community. And I just want to notice those in 1 Peter chapter 5. So notice follow along as I read in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, Peter is talking to the church, and he's talking to the church about how to live in troubling times, how to live as exiles in a world where the, the authorities are against you. That it's not just like in America where they're just kind of neutral about you. In, in the Roman Empire at this time, they were against the church overall. And he's saying, how, leaders, the elders who are among you, How do you need to lead? And it says here, uh, the the thing I want to draw out primarily here is that leaders need to keep the main thing primary. What is that main thing that we need to keep primary? Well, notice what he says. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he's saying, I'm speaking out of kind of this, I'm, I'm with you in this same role as an elder, And he's saying, Christ suffered for us, I saw it happen, and I know that I'm going to be a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. And he tells elders what to do, and then he says at the end, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the, the main thing that elders need to keep primary, both for themselves as well as the church, is that the chief shepherd died for us and is coming back for us. The chief shepherd died for us and is coming back for us. That's the main thing. That's the primary thing. That the church needs to remember together and to live out together is that the shepherd, the chief shepherd, died for us and is coming back for us. And if we don't keep that main thing the main thing, then we end up with a lot of problems. And we'll talk about a little bit of those. But this is just to remind you what it means to be a shepherd, Right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He he guides me on paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is our shepherd. And he gave us the chief shepherd, Jesus, to provide for us, to protect us, to help us, right? It says that that the chief shepherd takes us and he says... He says, I shall not be in want. It just means I'm not going to be in need. Like God is going to actively provide for me and take care of me. And he goes on and talks about what that means, right? That he would lead me beside still waters. He would let me lay down and rest. That I'd be able to eat and feed. God is, that's not something a pastor does primarily. That is something God is doing in your life. You say, well, I'm busy. I'm, uh, there's so many pressures, so many things going on. I get that. But one thing God is trying to do and trying to lead you to is times of rest, times of quietness, being in his word, re- rejoicing in his work. And if you're too busy, that's not God. <laughs> that's something else. Now, as the shepherd of your life, God also takes you through valleys and difficult times and challenges because He's the shepherd. He knows what's best. He's leading you home in that sense. And as that shepherd, He's going he's to take you through those valleys and show you His presence, help you to understand His, his comfort and His care during those times. And ultimately, he's going to bring you into a place of true rest in his home forever. He is that kind of shepherd if you are his sheep. Now, under shepherds have the role, in a sense, of providing help in that process, right? We're we're saying, Hey, here's God's word. You should be in God's word for yourself. Here, I'm gonna preach God's word, I'm not gonna just preach my own thoughts. So why? Because we're trying to feed you God's word so you know it and you can live it out and you can rest in it. And chief shepherds are there in the valley, or under shepherds are there in the valleys. Again, we're not the one leading you into the valley, hopefully, (laughs) but we're helping in the path of the valley saying, okay, can you find comfort in God's word? Can Can you hear the warnings of scripture? Hey, don't go that way. I know you're in the valley. I know it's tough, but don't go that way. That's that's bad. Under shepherds have the, the, the responsibility, just as it says here, to remind you, hey, you're headed for home. You're headed for home. This is not our home. But you're headed there. Trust your shepherd. He died for you. He's coming back for you. And as shepherds, we need to keep that main thing, the main thing. Because if we don't do that, then one, we're not glorifying the chief shepherd who is coming back for us. But also, it's also a matter of care and comfort because in the midst of life, we all need to keep the main thing, the main thing. And we try to make other things the main thing, like my career, my job, my family. And so he gives some warnings or some encouragements to shepherds here in the process, to, in that process of keeping the main thing the main thing. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your flock. So he said, there's three in a sense, negatives here, he's saying there's ways you can go about shepherding that are bad, that are not helpful, not helpful for your soul primarily, and therefore, when it, your soul is not right, they're not helpful for your sheep as well. He says, he says, not under compulsion. Like, you shouldn't have to do this. You say, well, I've got a family, I've got this, I've got that, I've got, I've, I've, I've got to keep My job, so to speak. No, not under compulsion. It should be willingly. You know, there's so many ways as a leader that you can manipulate yourself into doing things, but it's not out of a willing, joyful heart. And you don't want a a shepherd that's like that. He also says, not for shameful gain. Not for shameful gain. Oh, I just, I just, I need some money. (laughs) I'm going to write this book, or I'm going to have this platform, or I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make some money out of this deal. This is not for shameful gain. Again, because when you start living for shameful gain, you're living for this life and not for the next. Not that you don't need money to live. I get that. It's just saying it's not about the money in that sense. No, it's not domineering over those in your charge. being examples to the flock and here's kind of that key idea all through that's woven through here he's saying be an example to the flock it's not that you're in charge it's not that you have the things to say and you're all wise it's that you're an example to the flock in how you live and these are all so he's using these litany of narrow, narrow ways to say be an example but in the context of First Peter here, when he's talking about being an example, he's talking about being example, in the midst of suffering, That's the whole point of First Peter has been so far, up to this point in First Peter five, "Hey, suffering is going to happen to believers. just if you go back to First Peter chapter two and verse nine, he says it clearly. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh, of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may may see your good works, and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying, hey, you're sojourners, you're exiles, this isn't your home yet. He goes on to say in First Peter, just to everyone, he talks about different scenarios where people get mistreated, and how to respond in, in those scenarios, and then he summarizes it in v- chapter 3 and verse 8, I'm sorry, 9. He says, sorry, eight, I can't read that. For finally, all of you, he said, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called. He's, look, he's saying, hey, as believers, you're going to get reviled against. You're going you're gonna to have persecution, suffering happen to you in various ways. The biggest thing you have to remember is don't return evil for evil. Don't do that in your suffering. Instead, bless the people. Have the intention of blessing those around you. And when when he gets to the end here in 1 Peter 5, he's saying to pastors, when he says, be an example to the flock, he's saying, live that way consistently for your flock so that they can see how to live in the midst of difficult times. It's hard to do that. I've got kids, right? They sin against each other. They pick on each other. They say mean things to each other. And you know what happens? It's really easy to say mean things back. In fact, you want to do it because it's really easy. You can find, with your brother or your sister, you can find mean things to say because you know everything about them. And you can be like, okay, if you say that to me, well, then I'm going to say this to you boom, right back. But that is not what God calls us to do. God says, hey, God will take care of me. I need to bless. I need to love my enemies. Now, if it's easy to do in a family where you love one another, hopefully, How easy is it to do in society where you get to to see all the the hypocrisies and the problems in in society and you can shoot and and, and destroy and and lay waste and say, how ridiculous is society? It is. But God has not called us to do that. God has called us to bless. God has called us to love. Love. God has called us to to serve. And so we are called to this. And pastors are to live that out as examples. To not speak negatively of government. to To not trash those around you. But instead to seek to learn how to bless and encourage and work. To be a blessing. And one of the ways that Paul lays that out for Timothy is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, just to give you an example of this. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I've got to back up to 2 Timothy here. Chapter 2, he says this to Timothy as a pastor in Ephesus. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men will be able to teach others also. He's saying, do this main work of making disciples, and not just any disciple, but leaders of disciples who can teach others as well. So, pastors, in some ways, are are thinking, okay, I've got to bless, and I'm not just going to bless for this generation, I've got to bless for the next generation. And not just for that generation, but how they're going to bless the following generation. You notice he's, there's at least three generations here, right? It says Timothy, actually there's four. Paul to Timothy, Timothy saying pass it on to the next generation, who will then be able to pass it on to the next generation. He's like, there's four generations here, of, of, and your heart is to think about what you've learned that you need to pass on in order that they can pass it on to the next generation. So in this process of blessing and living out a life of blessing and, not, and, and living as exiles and strangers in the world, we're thinking not just about ourselves, we're thinking about the next generation. How does this work? Notice also then how he frames it, verse 8 of chapter 2. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with change, as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's saying, I'm enduring the suffering because of the elect, because of the next generation of those who need to hear the gospel. And I'm willing to do that. And as, as when you look at pastors, as you look at leaders, and there's plenty of not just pastors here, but pastors that claim to be pastors around the United States who build platforms from themselves or whatever, and some of them are good. I'm not trying to trash everyone who built a platform here. What I am trying to say is, look, consider not just their words, but their lives. Are they in it for shameful gain? Are they in it for for some other power trip that they're on? We are called to endure for the sake of the elect. And we're called to make disciples for the next generation. Enduring suffering in the process. And so that's what you want out of your leaders overall. You want men who are making the main thing the main thing. Christ is going to return, he's our chief shepherd. And as Christ put it to his disciples, the ones who forget that turn around and they beat their fellow believers, right? They get get angry. They they mistreat their fellow believers. Why? Because they forget that Jesus Christ is going to return. The chief shepherd who will reward those who live correctly and who will not reward those, judge those who don't live for him. Now, in that process, you say, well, how do we live as a church? Notice how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 5 at the end there. He says, Likewise, you younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And this is kind of point number two. Everyone needs to practice Humility if the if the leaders are called to practice humility well then everyone is being called to practice humility and how do how do we do that i just want to point out a few things here both in peter as well as in first timothy the first how do we practice humility together especially as a church is by prioritizing character over charisma leaders by prioritizing character over charisma in our leaders okay you can have guys who sound good who act good who are like man Everybody should be following this guy. He's got a lot of charisma. Great, I'm glad he's got charisma, but does he have character? Does he know how to endure suffering? Does he know how to to, to be patient and walk alongside of those who are hurting? Does he do the things behind the scenes with love and care? 1 Timothy 3 makes it clear both for Pastors as well as deacons, that character is the, the primary thing you should be concerned about in your leaders. Not how skilled and gifted they are at communicating, not necessarily how amazing they are in person, but what is their character like? Second Peter chapter 2 gives warnings about false teachers because the Bible is clear that false teachers will arise and they'll do things out of compulsion because they have to. They'll do things for shameful gain, you turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, which in my Bible is just over the page, he, Peter is pretty blunt here. He says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Can you imagine if yes, we had a good rain yesterday. In fact, I was wanting out, went out to get some stuff for my wife out of the car, and it hailed while I was outside. I was like, this is wrong. It's hailing. I don't like this, but it was. But it was good, right? For the ground, it was good. Can you imagine if Every storm this spring, the the, snow, the storm clouds came up, the thunder rolled, but rain never actually touched the ground. Like, yes, maybe even you had some water in the air, but it never actually fed the earth, right? And and we would go all summer long, and you'd know, be like, oh, it's so hot, but then oh, look, the rain's coming, it's going to be so great, Pfft, no, no rain. The, cr- the ground dries up, the crops die, right? That's what happens when you have no actual rain. It was good to get rain yesterday, right? We had not had rain in a while. And that's what he's comparing false teachers to. He's like, man, it looks great, it sounds great, it looks like you're going to get what you need, and then you don't. They're waterless spring mists driven by a storm. It, it sounds and looks cool, but ultimately... Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. He's like, they make huge claims and huge boasts about how they need to live. They're not living out of humility and character, they're living out of charisma and pride. And it's easy as a leader to try to do that, honestly. You can try to do, because you want to look good, you want to sound good, but you're called to live as an example to the flock. And, of course, this means that part of, part of this is recognizing the devil's schemes of fear and pride. Go back to Hebrew, uh, again, 1 Peter chapter 5. Notice how he talks about humility here. He says, "...humble yourselves therefore on the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you." Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's like, you've got to understand how the devil works. He uses fear and he uses pride. He uses fear like, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then this is what's going to happen to your country. If you don't do X, Y, and Z, this is what's going to happen to your church. If he, he uses fear to divide. And conquer people. That's what a a roaring lion is doing. The roaring lion in a lion pride is not the one that's actually going to eat you and kill you. The roaring lion is the one that's driving you toward all the other lions that are hiding out waiting for you. And the devil acts like a roaring lion. He wants to use fear to drive you to things that will destroy you. Rather, living in hope. I was talking to Norman Smith a little today, you know, he's living in Japan, and he was hoping to get back for, for furlough this, this past year, but of course, COVID, right? So he didn't get to do that, and uh, so we were talking a little bit, and he's like talking about just even the missionaries that, he, that, that are coming over from the states, and he's like, man, they're struggling with anxiety way more than what, what I remember, He's just saying, is is America kind of a fearful place right now? Because it feels like everybody that's coming over is struggling with anxiety overall. And I was like, maybe, I don't know, I'm living in it. (laughs) It's hard to tell, but but in some ways it's true. We live live in a place that keeps trying to drive us by fear. I don't know which, which, which news cycle you listen to. It's often, often, often driven by fear. Like if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then your country is going to destroy and your livelihood is going to get destroyed and your freedom is going to get destroyed. Look, we have a God who's in control. He controls everything. And he loves us. And Jesus is coming back for us. So I think we can trust him and not live in fear. But the devil wants to use fear. And when you're fearful, you're not humble, is the point. Because when you're fearful, you start to, to, to get to pride. You're like, I've got to, I got some answers. I'm going to do something. Or, or this is the answer. We, we, we start arguing with one another. We start fighting with one another. And that's exactly what the devil wants. Rather than focusing on the fact that Jesus is going to come back, we're focused on all the ways we think we need to solve our problems. So, that's pretty heavy. But at the same time, practicing humility with one another reminds ourselves, hey, let's focus on character. Let's focus on trust in God. Let's focus on what God is doing in our world. Because God is at work, is he not? God is at work. God's at work in COVID. God's at work in your home. God's at work in your workplace. God's at work in in your own heart. When you're struggling with your own sin and your own defeat, God's still at work. God is at work in so many different ways. The question is, are you going to trust that? Are you going to be like, you know what? Jesus is my shepherd. (laughs) He's, he's at work guiding me to places of rest. He's at place working even in the valley of the shadow of death. His rod and his staff are comforting me. He's guiding me and protecting me even there. Our shepherd never sleeps. And if that's true, then we can trust him. If that's true, then we can rest if that's true, then we can rejoice and not fear. And so, on this Mother's Day, that's one of the reasons why we, we, we love to rejoice in mothers, is it not? Because mothers have to live in hope quite a bit. If you didn't tell from all the things in that video right, right? Those are all the things that cause mothers to despair. (laughs) Will my house ever be clean? Will my kids ever listen to me? Will I ever have a moment of quietness? But they keep on keeping on because they have hope. They're examples to us of hope. They're examples to us of humility and service. And we are called to that same hope. We are called to that same humility. To live out lives of saying, there is a Savior. He is coming back one day. He's going to rescue us. He's going to reward us. And we can live in light of that fact. We can rejoice. So, one of the ways to have hope and live in humility today is to call your mom and say thank you. It's to say thank you for what you've done, the service you've had, because you've you, you, you hoped in me, and I have hoped too. <laughs> Not in you, but in Jesus. So will you do that? Will you rejoice in hope? Because our chief shepherd, he's coming. I don't know if it's today, but one day he'll be here. Heavenly Father, What a great hope we have. Our chief shepherd died for us. He went to the cross for us. He gave his life for us. And then he rose again and went and sat down at your right hand and is praying for us and working on our behalf, preparing a home for us, and is guiding us to that home. And yes, there are dark valleys and difficult times and the questions and uncertainty, but we thank you that we have hope. Help us to rejoice in that hope. Help us to live in that hope, because our chief shepherd will not forget us, but will come back for us. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.